If you were to uh, think about the one thing that needed to be changed most when somebody became a Christian, what do you think it would be? Somebody gets converted, what's the first thing that you think might need to change? The reason why I ask this is because I wonder why Paul has written these words in this place. If we really believe that Paul is telling us about the renewed mind, he's, he's, he's already told us about the renewal of mind and now calling us to transformation, the next thing that he begins to tell us about is a new perspective on our place in the community. Now, this would have not been my first thought, I wouldn't have thought. But conformity to the world is what Paul is concerned about. And I think that he is arguing for us in Romans 12 what a life freed from the power of sin looks like. In other words, the new life that we have in Jesus involves a radical transformation by the renewal of our minds. And what does Paul say was the implication of sin in our lives? Well, in Romans 1, he says that because of unrighteousness, God gave people over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity. And this involved in the first instance, of course, what's very familiar to us, sexual perversion. We all look at Romans 1 and we think about sexual perversion, but he continues with more. And he says in Romans 1, 28 to 32, since the did, uh, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. It can be difficult when hearing a list like this and to be capturing what is actually being said. It just sort of washes over us. So I'm going to try to give you the big picture of what I think is being said and then give you that list once more to try to help you grab on to some of it. But just again, I want to tell you that I think Romans 1 really serves as the background to what Paul is saying in Romans 12. Even as he calls us to the approval of the will of God, He's doing that in contrast to those that have approved those who stand against God. The big picture of what I think he's saying here in Romans 1 is what happens when our minds are debased and we live in sin is that we have terrible relationships with people. Of course, that's not all. But the way that sin works itself out from our minds through our bodies, that is through the rest of our lives, is into terrible relationships. People who are... People are no longer seen by us as partners, partners in God's world, but instead they're enemies to be conquered or they're opportunities for us to exploit. And so I want you to listen one more time to what a debased mind does to our relationships, how it impacts our relationships. They're full of 
envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. When our minds are given over to our sinfulness, our relationships are fraught. Did you catch that all of it is because of a debased mind? So with the call to transformation through the renewal of your mind, the immediate consequence is a better perspective about community both about your place and the place of others. There's a positive impact on the way that you begin to relate to others. And this perspective only becomes clear for us as we grab hold of the implications of the gospel for our life together. And I think this is what Paul's teaching us about in this passage. And so the first thing that he wants us to see, the first thing that we're called to, is to judge our place humbly. That is to have sober minds about our judgment reading this with my daughter last night. She says, what does sober mean? And I said, well, it means you're not drunk, Um, which is partly true. And what that means is that actually you're just in your right mind. But but what actually sober means, I think, is not exaggerating. You're just pretty honest and realistic about things as they are. And with that, then, I guess there's a place of humility, something about recognition about what is actually true. Paul tells us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We need to have sober judgment. So he gives us two things. One thing not to think, one thing to think. We are not to think too highly about ourselves. We are to think with sober judgment. And the bottom line for right thinking is recognizing that God has assigned to each person according to the measure of faith. He has given you, he has given me, just our right place. He's given us just the right place in the community. This is very countercultural. You've been told, and I have been told all of my life, to shoot for the stars, right? Aspire. Be something. Do whatever you want to do. Be whoever you want to be. Go and achieve. In fact, in my home country of America, it is virtuous to conquer others. All of you are people for me to overcome. I'm so glad I'm looking down on you all right now. (laughs) I'm serious about this. In America, you want to take over. You want to climb the ladder. You want to make something of your life. And even if that means overcoming others in the process, well, good on you, man. You're just better than them. But the gospel reframes our thinking. In Christ. There is no place to climb. Think about that. There is nowhere for you to go higher than you are. There's no status to be achieved beyond what you're already given. 
And I think this challenges us wherever we are. You are not great because you're a leader. Let me say that to myself. I am not great because I am a leader, because I am a minister, because I am a lecturer. Nor are you great because you are an aspiring minister, a more college student, a student minister, a previous small group leader in your church. That was excellent. If you're in Christian leadership of any sorts, this leadership is part of what God has assigned to you, but it's not because of your personal excellence or status. It's a gift to be used, as we'll see in a moment. But it also has the implication for others that aren't leaders. And if you're not moving into leadership or aspiring to be a leader, which I assume is not true of most of you, but maybe something you need to think about for others that you will minister to, they are not second class. They are not lesser than because they do not bear an office that you will bear. So there's no room for envy because even if you have what others have, your status would not change. I think there's room for a real particular application for Australian culture here, and I've said this in other contexts before, but I want to say it again now. Conformity to the world in Australian culture cuts down those that would rise up among us. We cut the tall poppy, and we see this as something quite virtuous. We say, well, this is in the interest of equality. We say, well, I don't want my mates to think too highly of themselves. But I fear, in fact, we can't stand to think about others promoted above us. That we think that if somebody is recognized, they will actually have something I don't have. And so for me in my own life, not being Australian, but very much identifying with Australian culture, in my own life, my sin shows through when a well-respected leader, maybe one of my colleagues, is criticized. Maybe somebody says, oh, they didn't do so great. And secretly inside of me, I think, No, they didn't, did they? And do you know why I like that? Because inside of me, it makes me feel like, yeah, maybe they aren't such a good writer or a speaker or a leader or a Christian. I'm just as good. Maybe I'm actually better. This is ugly. This is the ugliness of sin in my heart. How worldly. That's conformity to the world. So I fear that in Australia, we have this problem of envy as much as anybody else anywhere. And it's built into the fabric of society because cutting to the tall puppies down may be deeply Australian, but I think it's actually deeply unchristian. It keeps us from appreciating brothers and sisters around us as gifts. Instead, it makes us think about them as threats. Here are two things at the heart of my concern about this. When we cut people down, it leads to destruction rather than edification. But in the body, we're actually meant to be built up together, not tearing one another down. And it also leads to joylessness and thanklessness rather than rejoicing and appreciation. When I always look out for what's wrong 
And when I'm always trying to spot what's wrong in others so I can critique them and bring them down to size, all I'm doing is failing to appreciate the good things God's given to me in them and to rejoice at what a gift they can be to the body. In this passage, we're encouraged to judge our place humbly. Whether we're up or we're down, our place is given to us by God and it's appropriate and good. In fact, judging our place humbly involves us recognizing that we're part of a body in Christ, doesn't it? And that's the second point, that we need to recognize that we are one body in Christ. Look with me at the rich illustration Paul gives us in verses 4 and 5. As in one body we have many members, and the members don't all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We're first told that we're supposed to appreciate difference. A body's not all right hands. It's not all eyeballs. That'd be strange. Right? Instead, we have different parts that serve different functions. Can your eye hear very well? No. Can your ear see? No. But actually, together, they work really well to bring a well-rounded set of senses to us. Likewise, if I had two right hands, that would be a problem for me. But thankfully, I don't, right? That's good news. So too in the church. We have a different place and a different role and different gifts to others around us. And God has given to each one of us everything we need to take our place. But our place is distinct from others. And that's good. But we're also quickly told in verse 5 that even though we're different, we're united. And this means that we're bound together in our existence and our purpose. Bound together in Christ. And this means that though we are individuals, we are not independent. In fact, we are mutually dependent people. Imagine a body with one leg wishing to go this direction and this leg going, wishing to go this direction, like Peter on skis, right? It's just <laughs> impossible. Impossible. It's a mess. It's dysfunctional. It ends in disaster. Imagine a body wanting to rest, but your mind wanting to run. See, when the parts, individual as they are, seek to work independently, dysfunction ensues. And this sort of dysfunction is what happens to us when people in our church and in our community, people like you and people like me, don't exercise sober judgment about our place in the community. It's when we act unreasonably without our right mind. It's the opposite of the renewed mind that we have in our new life in Christ. So take this into our cultural moment for just a second. People today feel that they need to express themselves in whatever way they see fit in order to become their actual full self. Right? We call this self-actualization. But in the church, this is entirely counterproductive. Well, I have to do this because that's who I am and what I must become. And for me to become what, I, what I'm destined to be, I need to kind of shine. I need to perform in this way. That's so individualistic. It's so counterproductive to body maturation, to the life of the whole growing up together, 
and its conformity to this age. It's an emphasis on our individuality at the expense of our membership in the whole. And it forsakes the fact that we are members of one another, deeply interconnected. So the godly corrective is actually to recognize that for our full maturation as the people of God, one another interested in the edification of the other together, is to actually think about our place with regards to others. And only then will we truly become our collective true self. That's only when we will become who we actually are as the people of God, fully mature in Christ. But it's only possible when we build upon the security that comes to us in the gospel. Only in Jesus can I begin to see you as a gift rather than as a threat. Only in Christ are you someone to be appreciated rather than exploited. It's only because of a common foundation, that is, a life other than our own, gifted to us by grace, that we can live with our common interest in mind. So listen how Bonhoeffer put it. Because God has already laid the foundation of our fellowship, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ long before we entered into common life with them, we now enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. Jesus is our foundation, so now I can actually appreciate you and you can appreciate me because everything we need is found in him. And we are together in him. And so Paul gives us an exhortation in the end here in a very practical direction. He says, in view of your existence as a body in Christ, use your gifts accordingly. In view of all of this, use your gifts accordingly. We all have different gifts that have been given to us by God's grace. What we need, that is not just as individuals, but as a church, has been given to us for our life together. And so our contribution to that community is not something we establish, but something God gives us graciously. And in this freedom, we can use what's been given in service to others. Now, we're told about seven different gifts in this passage in verses 6 to 8. And rather than try to focus on each one of these and describe it to you, I think it may be better that I just give you what I think is the big thrust of what's happening here. The emphasis for spelling out these verses isn't to tell us about all the gifts that are available. Undoubtedly, some of us would feel excluded by this list. But instead, I think, Paul is hoping to show that the gifts are to be used for their purpose. So, when we know of a contribution we can make, we're to do that with the good of others in mind. We don't need to step on the toes of others. We also don't need to be somebody else. Praise God. For so long in my Christian life, I looked around at guys that I admired and thought, I need to be just like them if I'm going to be somebody. Have you ever tried to be somebody else? It is really hard and really disappointing. But actually, you're not supposed to be anybody else. The transformative message of this passage 
is that we all actually have a place in the body. And we're meant to take that place. It's God-given, and it's good. And then it dispels any notion of rivalry and envy. Because I can just appreciate somebody else that's different than me. Even what we might classify as better than me at something. And so what? Praise God. Instead, we're free to be ourselves and to appreciate others for who they are. Each one of us a gift to the other. Each one of us graciously given what we need to take our place. There's no room for pride. Nor discouragement. Instead, all we have is a reflection of God's kindness to us collectively. What a wonderfully different vision of community. Let's pray. Father, I pray that each one of my brothers here today would be liberated by this gospel message. That as our minds are renewed, we can be transformed in the way that we live in community together. No longer envying, no deep rivalry, no malice or murderous thoughts, not even disobedient to parents or any other kind of relationship challenge that comes to us because of our sin, but actually as we are set free from sin, and as we see ourselves established in Christ, we are free to serve and love and take our place in the body according to the grace you've given to us. And may this turn our thoughts away from self-actualization to community edification. We need your help for this, Lord. So please do this work in Jesus' name. Amen.